Well, my name is Michael Fueling, and I am the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Well, these shepherds had an unimaginably frightening experience. And so I think for most people um, in our heads, uh, there was this really adorable angel just dressed in a nice robe and showed up and said, hey, fellas, I got some good news for you. of great tidings. It's going to be for all the people, right? And uh, there's this sense in which I think we sanitize the beauty and the nature of what was actually happening here. So I would love for you to consider with me, even just uh, verse by verse here, um, from the shepherd's perspective, what, what might actually have been happening. Uh, the first thing they come to grips with is the glory of God. And I, I want to show you this in verse 9. Uh, the glory of God is a life-threatening and awe-inspiring experience. Let me just put it this way. If you ever experience the glory of God, um, you will not, never be left the same, and there is a high probability that you're going to be dead. Okay? And here's what it says, that the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And, and what is the most obvious response when the glory of the Lord shines around you? Great fear. Uh, you go back into the book of Exodus, and Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And God basically said to him, listen, Moses, if I let you see my glory, um, you're going to die. You'll never be left the same. Like, this is not going to be a good experience for you. And so even in this moment, there, there, are these, there are these men. There are these faithful men in the nighttime working. It's a normal night. It's another day. And then all of a sudden, I just love how God surprises them and shocks them. Uh, the second thing they experience is an angel of the Lord. So in the Bible, whenever somebody sees an angel, they have one of two responses. The first one is panic. And the second one is they pass out, right? You have one of two options here. You freak out or you pass out. And so this is like normal. So not only, right, is the glory of the Lord shining around these men, which is enough to make them uh, just freak out and, and be filled with great fear. Now they're actually meeting an angel. And of course, the angel's first words to these men are, fear not, don't be afraid, right? Because they are petrified. The, the vast majority of people cannot imagine the last time that they were so afraid that their voice was quivering and they sweat through their clothes. I'll help you. Why don't you come up here and preach a sermon and you'll know exactly what it feels like, right? This is the greatest fear of humanity next to death. I think death is number two after speaking in public. But imagine the scenario now from these shepherds' perspective. It goes on, and there's a third thing that happens to these men that I think, again, we sanitize. Uh, And don't get me wrong, this is a beautiful saying, but I want you to look at the message in verse 11, and here's what it says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So first glance, here's what you're going to say. Awesome, a Savior. Now, we get to say this because we're looking back on these events in retrospect, right? Um, But let let me just bring you into the world of a shepherd in first century Israel. If there is going to be a savior, their expectation, number one, is that it's going to be political. And number two, if there is going to be salvation from the tyranny of Rome, there will be nothing less than a revolt against the greatest superpower the world had ever known. This would be a war of epic proportions where bloodshed would be unimaginable. Again, we look back and we hear, yay, a savior, the shepherds here, what will my children have to endure for this salvation for the people of God to become upon us? Uh, I want you to think about for a moment the song. In fact, of 
Every time I read Luke 2 and I get to this passage about the angels' song, it makes me laugh. It's the funniest part. I think of the entire birth narratives of all the books of of the Bible. This makes me laugh because uh, it has this word, suddenly. So, okay, as if the glory of God wasn't enough, as if an angel, like, who makes you freak out or pass out, isn't enough, as if this message that leaves you wondering um, what are going to be the national, political, economic, social bloodshed implications, then suddenly it's not just one, but it's a multitude, which means myriad upon myriad are so many that you can't even begin to count. There's so many of them. And then this is the part I really love because, again, I think in most people's minds, probably from children's books or from uh, uh, art that we've seen, we have this image that there's like maybe, I don't know, a couple hundred androgynous, gender-neutral it's that somehow like have these long, flowing blonde hair and they're wearing robes and they have, they have a choir book and they're singing, right? And here's what it says. That their heavenly host, a host is, a, is military, it's army, it's a multitude of angels, not dressed in robes, in robes, but army regalia. Like, this isn't just like some little, like, sweet little moment. Let me just, like, dig deeper for a moment. Have you ever considered what genre of music they were singing? Okay. Um, like, there's a lot of places our brains can go with this. Definitely not smooth jazz. That's offensive to the Lord, okay? That's clear. Um, <laughs> But think about a bunch of warriors. What do warriors do? They chant. Have you ever considered the sound of a multitude of heavenly warriors in angel regalia chanting? I, I don't know how this all lands, but here's what I absolutely do know, that this was a shocking and unbelievable experience. I mean, I, I want you to get this, that this was just, this was nuts, this was one of those experiences that you can never unknow what you now know. You can never unsee what you just saw. This would leave these men changed for the rest of their life. And so here's what I find with a lot of these birth narratives. Again, we, we tend to sanitize the stories when we tell them to our children. And I understand that to a degree, but what happens when you do that is you take away so much of the power and the oomph and the awe and the wonder and the beauty and the detail and the nuance of what's actually happening. And then what happens is we tell the sanitized versions back to each other. And then we get up and we preach sanitized versions and we just, we smile. And and of course, Christmas has become a holiday. Debt, 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 presents, 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 and that's it. Because we live in a sanitized world, but this is one of the most emotional, moving, unforgettable, awe-inspiring moments these people will ever see for the rest of their lives. Seville Church, what do you do when God reveals himself to you. Let's look at verse 15 and see what happens. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Um, let us go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened. I mean, so what do you, okay, what do you do when the glory of God shines around you and angels uh, comes up to you and then you have a multitude of army angels chanting in front of you, right? You're like, whatever they're referencing, I feel like we should stop everything we're doing and we should probably go see What this thing is in verse 16 says, and they went with, what's that word? Haste. This is with a flurry, in a rush. Uh, There's a sense of urgency, like maybe they left some of their animals aside, and they're like, we, whatever this is, nothing else matters. We have to go with haste now and see whatever this is. And it says they went with haste, and they found Mary, and they found Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they, the shepherds, saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Here's what I know. Um, When God reveals himself to you, you have one of two options. 
you run to him or you run away from him. So as a pastor, I have a lot of really meaningful and awesome conversations with people. And it's, it's, it never ceases to amaze me that somebody will hear the gospel or the word of God and there will be something in them that lights up. And then what hits them are all the implications. If I run to Jesus, what might he demand of me? And so I can't tell you how many people actually in their head believe the shepherd's story. But they don't run with haste. They run the opposite direction because they're afraid of what the implications of their life might be. And the best thing I can do is plead with you to say, listen, there are some of you, maybe even now, I mean, it's Christmas. People come to church. You're dragged here by your families. God bless you. I'm so glad you're here. But there might even be something inside of you that you're just like, yeah, I believe here, but, but the implications of me running to him are far too enormous for me to do that. And I just want to tell you, run with haste immediately to Jesus. Respond like the shepherds. Here's a question. Do you think the people believed the shepherds? Okay, Mary, Joseph, that's an easy one. Apparently there were some people um, at this manger scene, they believed because they're already seeing the miracles and whatnot. But could you imagine being these shepherds and you have to go home to your wife and say, okay, honey, the glory of God shone around me and an angel, and then there was a multitude of army angels and they were chanting and it was epic proportions. You're never going to believe that. Right? Imagine if they go to the, to the village and they're like, gather, gather, hither everyone, let me tell you about the angel armies and, and the glory of God. And Imagine what the rabbi says. So I, I surmise um, if these shepherds wrote a book that there would be a hundred responses from Jews and Romans saying, no, it's impossible. That could never happen. God would never do that. He hasn't spoken in 400 years. Like this isn't real. You cannot trust these shepherds. What I find actually to be one of the most compelling parts of the shepherd's story is the guy who's telling the story. It's the guy who put his reputation on the line to tell the story. His name is Luke. Luke is a journalist. Luke is an incredibly intelligent man. Luke is interviewing firsthand and secondhand witnesses for years on end, seeking to discern what is true and what is not true about the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the power of Jesus Christ. Luke is intent on figuring out whether or not this is true. And Luke is studying. And Luke finally gets to the place where he reports and publishes the book of Luke. And he also reported and published the book of Acts as well. He put his name and even plausibly his life on the line to defend these shepherds' story. In fact, um, I, I've wondered like, if Luke could stand right in front of us and Luke could say something to each one of us, what would he say? And so this is my version of what I think Luke might tell us right now. I have interviewed skeptics, firsthand witnesses, and everyone in between. I have spent years discarding and disproving false stories and exaggerations. The preponderance of, evid- the preponderance of evidence leaves me with one irrefutable conclusion. These shepherds are telling the truth. With nothing to gain and everything to lose, Considering the continuity of their stories down to the very last details, these men are no liars nor exaggerators. I am so convinced of their testimony that I will put my personal reputation, my legacy, my integrity, and even my life on the line. I, wanna, I just want to take a moment and ask you, do you believe the shepherds?
Verses 18 to 20 tells us how people responded to this remarkable, unbelievable story. The first group are the hearers. These are the people who are somehow at the manger. They're at the birthplace of Jesus, and the shepherds come, and, and, and they tell them. It says this, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The word wondered here does not mean they wondered if it was true. It means they were in a state of wonder and awe at how great God was. They couldn't believe that God would break through human history into humanity in this way and in this moment. I can imagine they were filled with awe and they said, are you, okay, shepherds, are you serious? You got to see the glory of God and a multitude of angels, army angels? That's epic. That's unbelievable. And they wondered, they were probably a little bit jealous that they got to see this and the shepherds got to see it and they didn't. Number two is Mary's response. I love Mary's response. In verse 19, it says that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Like, uh, you need to empathize with Mary. She's oh, 13 to 15 years old. This girl got pregnant out of wedlock, has been accused of immorality and so many other things. And finally, finally, her story seems to be, be being validated. Finally, like maybe her name can be given back to her. And she ponders these things and she treasures them because finally somebody believes her and understands. There's another aspect, which is the massive implications that she is also probably pondering as well. I mean, this young woman, she knows the word of God. She knows the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Christ and the Messiah incredibly well. This is a godly young woman. And she's probably pondering and trying to figure out what are the personal implications for her and her family. What are the implications for her nation? What are the implications for the world? I mean, this was an event that would change all of human history, and she's trying to make sense of all the prophecies. Again, we get to look back, do we not? We get to look back and make sense of things in retrospect. Everything's clear in hindsight, but she didn't have that privilege. In fact, if, if, if you were a Jew in the first century and you knew the word of God well, here's what you would expect. You knew that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a suffering servant. You also knew that he would be a judge who would come back, back to uh, shut down all the oppressive governments in the world and, and usher in uh, everlasting worldwide global peace through the nation of Israel. Like You knew these things as a Jew. Like This was standard. But then, but what they didn't know, uh, because we now know in retrospect, is that the suffering servant was the first coming, and the victorious king was the second coming, and that there might be 2,000 years between the first coming and the second coming. Mary's pondering and trying to figure out, like, how is all of this plausibly going to make sense? Uh, imagine the shepherds also were thinking, okay, if an angel is this glorious, how much more glorious would God have been in all of his glory. When Jesus comes back, by the way, it won't be as a baby. It will be in all of his glory and righteousness. So, Village Church, I have, I have three simple prayers for each one of you who call in the name of Jesus. The first one is this. I pray that those of you who are hearing this, maybe in a new light for the first time, that somehow the shepherd's story would reawaken your wonder. That awe and delight that, quite honestly, the busyness and the chaos of the season just steal from us. Go, 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 dead, 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 credit, 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 present, 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 party, 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 here, there, everywhere. Like, there's no wonder and awe without margin and space. It's just a rule of life. When there's demands on your mind and your heart and your soul 24-7, 
intimacy with God goes away, wonder and awe goes away, there are things that can only be had when there's empty space. And maybe even just in these moments, like God would somehow, like he did for these people who heard it the first time, well up in you, wonder and awe. My second prayer for you is like Mary, that you would treasure and you would ponder these old stories. That somehow, once again, you would find delight in them. You're numb. You're kind of like, okay, I've heard the story over and over again. I get it, I get it. But somehow that when you tell the story to your children or to your grandchildren or to those that you disciple, that somehow maybe once again God would well up in you and you would ponder and treasure these things as you are in wonder and awe of him again. My third prayer is that like the shepherds, that this story would compel you to give God glory and praise. That when we worship here, it wouldn't just be the recitation of holiday songs of which you know all the lyrics, but that there would be something deeper inside of you. That Silent Night is not just a song that we know, but our heart is lifted up toward the Lord, giving him glory and praise. There are some of you here, as there is every Sunday and every week, um, every Christmas, every time we worship, there are some of you here that you have not yet believed and I want to just help you understand why these stories are here. They're not here to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. That's actually not the point of why Luke and the other gospel writers recorded these stories. They recorded these stories to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God and to prove it. And they revealed these stories to you so that you would personally respond by trusting in Jesus Christ. There is no doubt an objective, a larger personal objective that Luke had, not just for his original audience, but for every single one of us who would pick up this biography of Jesus. His desire is that all who hear this would know that he did due diligence in what he is reporting is true in historical fact, and that we would respond and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I think this is the ultimate desire of Luke, and this is also the ultimate desire of us. If Jesus is who he says he is, I would be a fool to not want you to personally trust in Jesus Christ. I would actually be very mean if I didn't want you to trust in Jesus Christ. Let me help you for a moment, because there's a, um, a great lie in Western culture that every one of us, whether we realize it or not, um, has so easily bought into. The lie, goes, the lie goes like this. Good people go to heaven. If I work hard enough and I accrue enough good works, etc. I don't know if you know this, but that's not anywhere in the Bible at all. It doesn't even, it's not even there. You'll never find it. In in fact, what the word of God teaches is that nobody actually could ever be good enough. All the accumulation and aggregation of all your works has no ability to wipe away and cleanse your sin before a holy God. Not even possible. In fact, every other religion except for biblical Christianity teaches that if you're good enough and you accrue enough good works, you can go to heaven. But you open up the Bible, it's just not there. Which actually, by the way, is incredible news. It's incredible news. Because if you had to work your way there, that is an exhausting reality. And the Bible just kind of invades all these false religions and all these false concepts of salvation. And it says, listen, you could never do it. Your sin cannot be cleansed by your own good works. This is the whole point of the incarnation. That the only reason the incarnation means anything is because it culminated in a crucifixion. And let's be honest, though. In the first century, crucifixion was a dime a dozen. You get on the road any day of the week, you could find crucified men men and women and criminals. And the only reason the crucifixion had any power was because of the resurrection. 
And the resurrection was God's declaration that this baby isn't just another baby and this dead man on a cross isn't just another criminal, but he truly is the son of God with power. And this declaration of the resurrection was made before heaven and hell and humanity and all of history. And all of history can look back and say, this Jesus is set apart and uniquely different. This shouldn't be a holiday. This should be a celebration of the incarnation of God, the master plan of salvation. But I think we'd be remiss if we just left Christmas at the incarnation because the incarnation is like the beginning of a race. We celebrate the people who make it to the end of the race, do we not? And when Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, what a beautiful proclamation that God has made to us. Your good works will never, ever, ever cleanse you from your sin. Only the shed blood of Jesus can do that for you in your place. And so my, my plea, my, my desire, my hope is that if Jesus truly is who he says he is, if Luke is true and the shepherds are telling a true story, that you would believe. This is why he wrote this book, even in the first place. I want to take a moment, I want to just, I want to pray um, for each one of us because we're going to go home to food and flurry and everything in between, right? Maybe this is a time just to slow down our brains and slow down our minds and maybe it's just a moment for God to maybe reawaken our awe and our wonder and a joy again. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess uh, we're busy. We like it. We're addicted. It's fun. It makes us feel important. We confess that we have so many things in our brain. Some of us are wondering if we left the oven on. <laughs> We have people we have to entertain tonight. We have presents to still buy because we're, we're too busy. God, would you just clear those things out of our brain for a moment? Would you draw our hearts and our minds back to the whole point of this whole thing? Actually, the whole point of life. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who became flesh. We have a God who willingly went to the cross. We have a God who was raised from the dead. We have a God who paid the price for our sins. Would you reawaken in us awe and wonder? And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christmas. And thank you that the blood of Christ even covers all of the sin of our busyness and distraction. And so, Lord, we come before you now. We are just so grateful. And what a joy that we have to remember what you've done for us and to worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.